Are you a confident person? Do you know what I mean by that? You know, like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. I have confidence in confidence alone. Besides which you see, I have confidence in me. Well, we Brits tend to be generally quite suspicious, don't we, of confident people. Uh, Our American cousins are a bit more comfortable with confidence, uh, aren't they? They seem to ooze it in a way that often uh, we don't. We Brits tend to be more circumspect, don't we? And when you read some books on church growth that tend to be from a more American side of things, they tend to say, well, just have confidence. That's enough. That does it. Just be confident. But I think Mark Twain, the American wit of the Victorian era, mocked this attitude quite well. He said, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. But that's not what we want, is it? We don't want to have ignorance and confidence. We don't, like Julie Andrews, want to have confidence in confidence. We don't even want to have confidence in ourselves. But, I want to say this morning, that doesn't mean that we can't be confident. As we shall see, there is a different confidence that's available only to believers, a confidence that isn't in ourselves. But in our first section of the psalm, David doesn't sound confident at all. Our first section is restoration, uh, if possible. Have a look at verses 1 to 4 with me again. Deliver me from my enemies, O O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin... Oh, oh, sorry, I'm reading Psalm 59, aren't I? You'd let me carry on, wouldn't you? (laughs) Well, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, don't have confidence in me. There we go. Let's um, Let's try Psalm 60. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defences. You have been angry, oh restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. David, as he writes this, feels that he has been rejected. More than that, really, that his nation has been rejected. All the way through, David sees God at work. You've done this, you've done that, you've done the other. But God is at work, he feels, for the nation's destruction. Now, commentators have really struggled with this psalm because the introduction that you read seems quite positive. So, David striving with these people in Syria, then Joab on his return striking down 12,000 people. It sounds really positive. It sounds as though this is a great victory. But David sounds quite the opposite, doesn't he? And it's even more positive when we look in the account that this is based on in 2 Samuel. I put it on the back of your notice sheets, 2 Samuel 8, and I'll read verses 3 3 to 8. So this is the account it's based on. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, the king of Zobah, as he went to rescue his power at the river Euphrates. Sorry, restore his power. And David took him from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobar, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. 
Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betar and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Sounds, doesn't it, as though David is going from victory to victory. It seems everywhere he's going, uh, he's, he's meeting with victory. Uh, it sounds amazing. Now, some people say this was written before his battle with the Syrians. But actually, if you read the section before, he's just as victorious. He's striking down Philistines. He's doing all sorts of things. Hardly looks like God has rejected them. And the second part that this is based on later in the chapter sounds even more amazing. 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and throughout all of Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David is being really victorious wherever he goes. Now here the victory is attributed to David. In Chronicles it's attributed to Jab's brother, and here in the psalm it's attributed to Joab. Now that's not strange in a way, because if you think about it, it wasn't David who literally struck down 18,000 men, nor was it Joab or his brother. It was these people who were in charge of the army. Um, Either way, this was a crushing defeat, wasn't it? There's a slight difference in numbers, but again, it just depends how you count uh, casualties sometimes. Either way, it was a great victory. So... How come our psalm? If that's what was happening, if David was so victorious, wherever he went he had victory, why is he writing, oh my God, you have rejected us, broken our defences? Well, we have two options, don't we? The first one is that David only feels rejected by God, uh, when in reality he actually hasn't been. Or the second one is the accounts in Samuel aren't really showing us the whole picture. There's something going on behind the scenes. Well, let's look at those two options. The first option then, David only feels rejected by God. This is a possibility, isn't it? It could be that the very stark language that's used in the psalm uh, is just how David is feeling. It's poetry, so it's allowed to sort of use hyperbole. It's allowed to, to use those big terms. It may seem counter to all logic, but this has often been the experience of believers, hasn't it, down through the ages? It's easy to focus on the negatives and forget all the positives of our experience. The author of 2 Samuel, you see, might be able to look back and see victory after victory. But it's possible that in the moment, David sees battle after battle after battle. Syrians one day, Edomites the next day, soldiers maimed, friends dying. Looking back, the author of 2 Samuel can declare a great victory. But in the midst of it, it may have felt very different for David. God had not ultimately rejected David and his kingdom, but David might not be able to see that so clearly in the moment. It's a bit like there was a a, a match uh, a lot of years ago, I don't know much about football, um, but back in 1999, there was a match between Manchester United and Bayern Munich uh, for the Champions League final. And uh, as it got to stoppage time, Man U were one down. And people started to leave the stadium, you know how they, they do, you know, they think they've lost, so they, they go, heads down. They could hear the cheering, but they just carried on. 
But while they were leaving, Man U scored two goals, apparently, in the, the last minute of stoppage time, and they won. But there were still people who'd left early, who sort of heads down, you know, sad, they've heard the cheering, they're assuming it's the other side. People outside are miserable because they think they've lost, even though they've actually won. In the moment, it can be hard to see. Even though we're winning, it can feel like losing. And that can be our experience too, can't it? We can feel rejected by God as individuals. We can feel rejected by God as a church. Why haven't you grown us? Why haven't we seen that breakthrough in the battle with sin? Why haven't you brought revival? What have we done wrong? And then only to look back years later and see that God had not abandoned us at all. Actually, he was at work in the midst of us. In the moment, it's easy to see the negatives and it's harder to see the positives. It's totally possible to feel rejected by God when that's really not the case. So that's the first option. David is feeling uh, it, but it's not actually the reality. The other option is that there's more going on than is immediately obvious in the verses. It does sound like what he's describing in Psalm 60 is a military defeat, doesn't it? The language that he's using. Defense is broken in verse 1. Land quaking and torn over. Destruction in verse 2. The seeing of hard things. The army stumbling in verse 3. A banner set up. It's all military language. Now, we've already said this was a time of victory, not defeat. And that's true. But the geography of the area might help us understand a little bit better about what's going on. Here's a map of the area. So this area up... Oh, that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, this area up here at the top, that's where he's fighting uh, at the start of chapter uh, 8 of uh, Samuel. And um, he's fighting in the north of the country. And there David seems to be on the front foot. He's taking the land that God had promised his people back in Genesis 15, where God had said, you'll take the land right away to the river Euphrates, which is right up here at the top. So he seems to be trusting in God's promises and going out proactively. In the second part, though, where they fight in the Valley of Salt, that's down here in the south. That's actually in their territory. So it seems, by most reckonings, actually, what's going on is that actually while they're away fighting in the north, the Edomites attack in the south. So what's actually happening is that their land is being invaded while they're away up in the north. Their borders have been breached by the Edomites. In which case, the psalm begins to make more sense, doesn't it? It explains why it keeps talking about on their return, they struck down however many people. They came back to fight off invaders who had invaded their land. So actually, even though David is victorious in the north, he has to come back south and defend his land. He is victorious, but before that, he's actually been invaded into his kingdom. In which case here, David could be feeling genuinely that God has rejected the nation. His own great kingdom has been invaded. His own people have been killed in their homes. People that he was supposed to protect. People that God had given to his care. And it's possible that verse 4, even though it sounds quite positive, you set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. might sound quite positive, but it might be in a negative light. There was supposed to be a place of safety. There's supposed to be somewhere to run to, a banner. But instead, the integrity of the kingdom is in trouble. David wasn't there when his people needed him because he was away up in the north. So what does David do 
whichever scenario. Well, he calls out to God for restoration. Whether it's perceived rejection or whether there really was an invasion by the Edomites, David believes that restoration is possible. Oh, restorers, verse 1. That word restore in Hebrew has the idea of turning. Turn us back to you. Turn back to us. Return to us. Refresh us. Revive us. There are all possible ways of translating that word. Come back to us. Restore us. Return to us. Whatever has happened, David believes that God can turn it around. He believes their fortunes can be restored. If they have displeased God, he believes that God can still restore them. If God has broken them in verse 3, then he can repair them. And we need to believe along with David that this is true. Too often we feel like the work of the gospel in our land is sort of managed decline. Bunker down and wait until it passes. But David's having none of it, is he? Manage decline of his kingdom? No way. Restore us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. Mend us, Lord. Come, Lord, return to us in power. Come, Lord, grant us victories while he's praying. We need to believe this as a church, and we need to believe this in our lives as well. As we battle with sin, as we struggle with unbelief, God can restore us. God can mend what is broken. There is real hope for the future. There is really a banner for all who fear him. A place of safety and security in the battle. And his name is Jesus Christ. We must flee to him and be restored. He offers us forgiveness and restoration. Because he has borne the punishment for our sin on the cross. He can and will restore us. And we need to keep believing this as a church. Just because everything might look, look positive in the moment, well, God is still able to restore. God is still able to revive. God is still able to grant us not just manage decline, but victory. David was about to bring the kingdom's borders to the largest that his kingdom would ever have. Even if he didn't feel victorious in the moment. Even this attack of the Edomites actually will result not in their defeat. But do you see, another nation brought under David's control. Another nation in the kingdom. Think about that for a second. Even the enemy's attacks here, God uses for the growth of his kingdom. David cries out for restoration, and restoration is possible. Why? Because of who God is, and also what God owns. God gives David a different reason to be confident, or a good reason to be confident here, in verses 5 to 8. Our second point is, Otley and Ilkley are gods. Have a look at verses 5 to 8. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, over Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. In the light of David's pleas for an answer, we're presented with something that God has said, something that God has spoken. His holiness there is probably a reference to the tabernacle, the holy place. 
Indeed, other translations translate it that way. God's spoken from his holy place. And he speaks to them of different places. And again here, a map will be handy. He speaks to them, first of all, of Shechem and Succoth. They're two towns either side of the River Jordan. One really is at the heart of the west of the Jordan, and one is at the heart of the east of the Jordan. What he's saying by using those two towns is saying both sides will be divided up and given to God's people. All of God's land, west and east. Then he talks about Gilead and Manasseh. They are here, again on the east side of the Jordan. Um, They're the major regions, if you like, on that side. The other two places, Ephraim and Judah, are on the west side of the Jordan. What he's really saying by using these big areas, he's saying all the land is the Lord's. All of it is his. East and west, to the north and the south, the big regions, the towns, everything belongs to God. All that God has promised to give them belongs to him. So David has no need to fear that God has rejected him, that he'll lose the land, because it's not his to lose. It's God's. God's possession. He owns it. And more than that, he starts to use terms to explain what he means by them being his possession. He says Ephraim is his helmet, the armour of war. He calls Judah his scepter, the weapon of kings. David, the king, of course, is from the tribe of Judah. He's saying here that the people are there for his purposes. See, the scepter doesn't belong to Judah. Judah is God's scepter. Judah belongs to him, and God will use him as he sees fit. So he's saying that the whole of the land is the Lord's. God will use it for his purposes. But it's not just the land of Israel that belongs to God. Have a look again at verse 8. Moab is my washbasin. Over Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in joy. Here we have three of Israel's enemies. And it's not the language here of lofty, you know, helmet and scepter. He calls Moab his washbasin. Now, don't think here what we have as washbasins, you know, clean and ceramic, you know, nice and, and tidy. This was where you washed your dirt into. That was your washbasin. Um, normally, this was something that you'd use for your feet. Um, so it was like a, a foot washing basin. Uh, I mean, have you ever, have you ever gone uh, with children where they've got their wellies all muddy? And you sort of have to hose it down and, you know, all the gunk falls off. Imagine a bucket full of that. That's what he's talking about um, for Moab. And Edom is his shoe rack. Edom is his footstool, if you like. Not a flattering picture. Bearing in mind what state shoes and feet would have been in in those days, it's a picture of total submission. They're entirely there to do his bidding. He just puts his feet on them. And the Philistines will dare his too. He shouts in triumph over them. He's victorious over them. They are his. Now this shouldn't surprise us that he speaks this way. All of this was spoken through the mouth of Balaam, you know, the donkey guy. Uh, in Numbers twenty four seventeen. it's not on the back of your notice sheet, but I'll read it to you. Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. 
This psalm picks up on the language of all that little section, doesn't it? As God defeats his enemies. So he's saying that God will crush his enemies under David's feet. They pose no real threat to him because even David's enemies are God's. The whole world is the Lord's. It says in Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. What he's saying here in this psalm is there is nowhere that is not God's. There is nowhere that does not belong to him. The whole earth is his, even when parts of that world oppose him. Wherever David steps, he's not in enemy territory. He's in God's territory. The whole earth belongs to God. And friends, that includes Otley. That includes Ilkley. It includes Burley and Ben Ridding. It includes Geisley, Menston and Yeadon. It includes Poole, Weston and Asquith. There is no place in Yorkshire that is not his, and not just because it's God's own country. There is no place in England that is not his. There is no place in the UK that is not his. As we step out of this building, we're not stepping into enemy territory. We're stepping into God's territory. As we seek to reach our towns, we're not somehow stepping out of God's sphere of influence. We never leave God's sphere of influence. God is God outside these doors just as much as he is inside these doors. So we have no need to fear. We have no need to despair. The world is already God's. Not that that means they don't need the message of salvation or are already saved. But it does mean that God is Lord even over them. As we do this, as we take that message out, we're not fighting against the grain of the world or of history. We're going with the grain of the universe, if you like. Certainly there's opposition, but ultimately the world belongs to God. God is the Lord of all. And that means that we can have confidence in him. It's his world. So will David be confident? Well, that brings us to our last section. So have confidence in God to bring the victory. Have a look at verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? David here is still a bit unsure. The answer should be God, shouldn't it? God should bring them. But David still feels rejected by God. Have a look at verse 10. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Even though he's heard God's word, he's still unsure. And that's a real picture, isn't it? Because David was a real person. Actually, sometimes when God presents us with his word, we know what the response should be. But David here is a real person. He still feels unsure. But he does know where his help comes from. He does know that it's from man and not from God. Have a look at verse 11. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. He's saying that the salvation of man is vain. That word there means false, deceptive, not real, pointless. He's saying all that people can offer him really is pointless, vain, unreal. He knows that he needs God's help. After all, the whole earth is God's, isn't it? Even his enemies. 
We're just man. He's going to do miserably, isn't he? But he knows that with God, he will do valiantly. It is God who will bring the victory. It is God who will defeat his enemies. David is unsure of what is happening, but he knows where he needs to go to for help. He knows that the only help that will work, the only help that counts is God's. With man, they will do miserably, but with God, they will do valiantly. That word valiantly means mightily, boldly, victoriously. It's used of men of valour, mighty men in the Old Testament. God will grant them victory. He will tread down their foes. So of course we know from this then, David just doesn't bother going to Edom. He just leaves it all to God. No. David doesn't stay at home and let God fight his battles in that way. No, in light of God's promise, David goes... And he fights. Remember earlier on we mentioned there was some confusion though as to who struck down the Edomites. Was it Joab, David, was it Joab's brother? Here's the real answer. God. God struck them down. God gave them victory. But he did it through the hands of his people. God's encouraging words to them weren't supposed to settle them into apathy. They were supposed to stir them into action. The promises of God were not a call just to pray. They were a call to pray, but not just to pray, but to battle. Knowing that if God was with them, they ultimately couldn't fail. So as we look at the year ahead, we must bear this all in mind. The salvation of man is vain, but with God we shall do valiantly. If we trust in man, then all our plans are in vain. They're pointless. But with God, we shall do valiantly. And that doesn't mean then that we don't do anything, sort of leave it to God. It's not a call to inaction, but to action. Not a call to bunker up, but to battle. It doesn't excuse us of our responsibility to fight, but it does mean that our fight is never in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbour, that's your neighbour, your labour is not in vain. As we face the year ahead as a church, we need to have confidence, but not confidence in ourselves, confidence in God, that special confidence that can only belong to believers. With God, we can and we will do valiantly if we stick close to him. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to plan or dream. But he doesn't want us to put confidence in our plans, in our dreams. It doesn't mean that we spend time making excuses of why we're not doing anything. It means that we enter the battle with confidence in God. Like the soldier who walks up before the enemy, seemingly confident. But he's only confident because he knows that the army is right behind him, about to come over the hill. We can stand up for Jesus, we can fight, we can battle, but in his armour, for his cause, not our own. For his victory, not our own. Not with confidence in ourselves, but in our mighty God. You see, we put no confidence in the flesh, do we? But we should put shed loads of confidence in God. So are you a confident person? Well, do you know what? In general, it depends on your character, doesn't it? But do you know what else? 
it also depends on your God. With God, we shall do valiantly. We shall stand. We can grow. We can thrive in God. But we must come to him and him alone. What we need is not self-confidence, not even as a church. What we need is God-confidence. So let's pray that God would grant us that this year. Let's pray.